Take your Bible and turn to Exodus chapter 20. Some of you already did that. (laughs) Exodus chapter 20 and verse number 1. Exodus chapter 20 and verse number 1. And since we can use the refresher, what we'll do is we'll read each of the Ten Commandments every Sunday going through them, though we'll only look at one commandment a week. Exodus chapter 20 and verse number 1. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant, or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord abideth forever. I would say next to maybe the 23rd Psalm and John 3.16, there's no passage of Scripture that is as well known to us as the Ten Commandments, even if you didn't do so great on your test. In fact, there's probably no passage of Scripture that sounds to our ears more like the Bible than that oft-repeated prohibition in these commandments, Thou shalt not. That's what the Bible sounds like, right? Thou shalt not. But what is the law of God here, and what is the law of God for? How should we understand it, and how should we apply it to our lives? That's what I want to begin talking about with you over the next few weeks, because these words given to us in the Ten Commandments are of first importance. In fact, you find the Ten Commandments repeated in the book of Deuteronomy, chapter number 5. And there Moses gives the Ten Commandments again to the people of Israel, a new generation of the people of Israel, who are about to go into the Promised Land. And in Deuteronomy, chapter 5, Moses reveals that these Ten Commandments in Exodus 20 were actually engraved on the tablets of stone by the hand of God Himself. God hand-wrote these words for His people. And that's significant because that occurred before Moses himself ever put pen to scroll to write the book of Genesis. In other words, the Ten Commandments are the very first written words of God for His people, authored and written by 
God himself. And these words in the Ten Commandments are personal and they are communal. In other words, I shall not kill. But as a body of believers, as a society even, we should want to live in and cultivate societies that value human life. These words are practical. They give you very concrete things to do. Honoring the Sabbath and things not to do. Taking the name of the Lord in vain. And ultimately, when you get right down to it, you survey the Ten Commandments and you find here rules for living that you really want everybody else to follow. I really want my neighbor to believe he should not steal. Thou shalt not commit adultery. My wife really wants me to believe that's true. Honor your mother and your father. I'm raising my kids so that they believe that that is true. But in these words, uh, well, I'm trying to, in these words of first importance, where does God begin? Does God begin by talking about human life? Does God begin by enshrining property rights? Does God begin by reforming the IRS tax code? Don't you wish? God begins with himself by saying to the people, at the heart of who you are, as an individual and as a community, is your understanding that I am God alone, that I have no equal, I have no rival, I will settle for no substitute, I will not let you settle for any counterfeit. I am your God and you will have no other gods before me. What God says to the people here is, because there is none like me, you can have no God but me. That's what I want to show you today from this first commandment. Because there is no God like him, you can have no God but him. But to properly understand this, we have to, I think, put it in kind of a, a triangular frame. There are three words that I want to give you. In the preamble to the Ten Commandments, where the Lord says, I brought you out of Egypt, and in the first commandment, that help us bring into focus what the Lord means when he says, you will have no other gods before me. And the first word that I will give you is the word rescue. You'll notice in this passage of Scripture, before God ever gives the law in verse number 3, he reminds the people of Israel of who he is and what he's done on their behalf in verse number 2. In other words, before he ever gives them a command, thou shalt or thou shalt not, he says, let me remind you who I am. And let me remind you what I have done for you. And it's important that you get this. It's important that you see this in context. In fact, it's important that you read all of the Bible in its proper context. You know that, right? Now, what we tend to do, I think, sometimes... Just let me run a, a little rabbit here. This is a good trail, though. It's hot. What we do a lot of times is we treat Bible verses and phrases and stories just like little... Like, like they're in a fortune cookie that you get at the Chinese buffet. And we just pluck them out of their context, and so we make the Bible mean and say anything that we want it to say. Well, church, if the Bible can mean anything, then the Bible really means nothing. We can only understand the Bible in its proper context, just as we can only understand our own words in their proper context. You could go to my wife today, and you could say, you know, just the other day I heard Brother Jesse tell another girl that he loved her. And you could cause all kinds of havoc in my house, professionally, for me, without the context of, I was talking to my mom, or I was talking to my daughter. You've got to see the context of the Ten Commandments. And God gives us the context here in verse number 2, by taking the people back in their memories to His saving work in the Exodus. Now remember, the book of Exodus begins with the people of Israel in slavery. 
for 400 years, generation after generation of the Hebrew people found themselves living under the tyranny of the Pharaohs, found themselves under the grinding oppression of the Egyptian people, living in chains, living as little more than beasts of burden to be given a task and then to work at that task until they dropped in their place and somebody else was put in to work. And you find the people feeling forgotten and feeling alone. But some of my favorite verses in all of Scripture, in Exodus chapter number 2, the Word of God says that when the people cried out to God, God heard, God saw, God knew, and God remembered. God heard, God saw, God knew, and God remembered. And I want to tell you today, let me interrupt my sermon on the Ten Commandments and tell you this, that there are some of you as the people of God this morning, you feel like you are carrying a burden of discouragement and defeat that is too heavy for you. And you feel like you are chained up in the bondage of temptation or the bondage of doubt or the bondage of failure and you feel like there's no way out. Well, I want you to know that their God is your God. And our God knows, our God sees, our God hears, and our God remembers. And in Exodus chapter 3, God, who heard and remembered, he calls the human hero of the story, Moses, to deliver the people. And he sends Moses with a message to Pharaoh, let my people go. But the showdown that happens in the Exodus is not really between Moses and Pharaoh. And it's not really even between Israel and Egypt. It's not between freedom and tyranny. The showdown, as interpreted by God, right there in the middle of all of it, Exodus chapter 12 and verse number 12, is between himself as the true God and the false imposter gods of the Egyptians. He says in Exodus 12, 12, And on all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. judgments. I am the Lord. What's God doing in the Exodus? God is demonstrating his power on behalf of the people of Israel. And in demonstrating that power on behalf of his people, God is showing that there is no other God with any power. And so God demolishes the gods of the Egyptians. You know, they worshipped any number of gods. They worshipped the Nile River. My goodness, the Egyptians worship their cats. Like, how do you have a god when you have to change his litter box every week? But the Egyptians did. And God is demonstrating systematically that he alone is God. And he destroys all of the false gods of the Egyptians in the plagues and the judgments. And he brings the people of Israel out of their bondage, brings them through the Red Sea on dry ground, feeds them in the wilderness, gives them fresh water to drink at Mara, and now God brings his people to Mount Sinai. And he assembles the people of Israel together as one, as a covenant community, and he says, I am going to now give you my law. Look back in Exodus 19, verses 5 and 6. He says this, Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. And so God gathers these redeemed and rescued people together. And he says, because of what I have done for you, this is how you are to live in response to my power working on your behalf. You know what you call it when God's power works on behalf of people? You call it love. You know what you call it when God's power and God's love work on behalf of people who don't deserve it and can't earn it? You call it grace. And now the people of Israel, rescued from their bondage, stand before God to hear how they are to live in response to His grace. 
And I belabor that point today so that you will understand that we can never separate the demands of God's law from the display of God's love. And we're tempted to do that. We're tempted to do that in so many different ways. And we do that sometimes we read the Old Testament law. So you've got the Ten Commandments, and then you've got like 600 other laws on top of that. And you think, okay, I've got to do all of these things. And when I do all of that, then God's really finally going to love me. But then what we tend to do is we tend to layer all the examples of great heroes of the Bible on top of that, right? And so I've got to be bold and courageous like Moses. And I've got to be a giant killer like David. And I've got to be a vegetarian like Daniel. Fat chance of that happening. And then if I do all of that, then God will really love me. And then we've got the example of Jesus we've got to deal with. If I pray like him and if I love like him and I forgive like him, then God will finally be impressed with me. And then on top of all of that, we add all of the cultural expectations that Baptists in Alabama love to heap upon people. Thou shalt not drink, thou shalt not chew, thou shalt not date girls who do. And we think, if I do all of that, if I just get my arms around all of that, then God will love me. That is not the pattern that God sets forth here in the Ten Commandments. What God says is, I have loved you. I've shown you my love. I've rescued you. I've redeemed you through the blood of the Lamb that was slain at the Passover. Through the power that brought you out of your bondage, I have loved you. And because I have loved you, now you should obey me. But what many of us do is we think, well, if I obey God, then he will love me. And some of us have lived our whole lives crippled by doubt and uncertainty and fear. Why? Well, because the Ten Commandments crush us. The examples of Bible characters crush us. The expectations of cultural Christianity crush us. And we always fear we haven't quite measured up. We haven't quite done enough. Or... On the other hand, we look at God and we say, well, if he has all these rules for us and all these expectations, then serving him is nothing more than slavery. All God has to offer me is a job. All God has to give me is a rule, and who wants that? And that's why some of you this morning have come into this place, and you come to church, and you're good for a couple weeks, and then you drop out, and you drop back into the same sins, and then a month later you feel bad about it, and you come back, But all you find is this grinding service because you have separated the demands of God's law from the display of His love. When what Scripture says to us clearly today is that God has shown us a greater love, delivered us from a greater bondage, and given us a better law than He did the Old Testament saints here in the book of Exodus. What we know today is that God has loved us with an everlasting love. That God has commended his love towards us. And that while we were yet sinners, not when we were obedient, not when we were saints, not when we were good enough, but God displayed his love for us while we were yet sinners, that Christ died for us. And if that's true, then I come before God and say, I have no other God but you. So you have to understand rescue. But you also have to understand relationship. That's the second part of our triangular frame that we'll use today, to understand relationship. Notice how God speaks to the people of Israel. Verse number two, I am the Lord, your God. The word for Lord there is not so much a title as it is God's name. I am Yahweh, I am Jehovah, and I am your God. Now, isn't that a little bit presumptive on God's part? 
God doesn't say, you know, now that I've, I've brought you out, what you should do is you should hold a popular vote and determine what God you want to serve. Just, just pick a religion. Y'all can be worshipers of me, or you could maybe worship some of the Canaanite pantheon of deities or some of those old Egyptian gods that, that were destroyed. You know, I, just, just pick who, you, who, who do you feel like you should follow. God doesn't do that. God says, I'm the Lord, and I'm your God. Well, who does God really think he is to tell us who we should and should not worship? Well, he thinks he's the only God who's worthy of worship. And because God is convinced that he alone is God and he alone deserves glory, he can come to us and he can say, because I am your God, this is how you are to live. And what the rest of the Ten Commandments offer us, really, is the expression of what it means to live as the people of God. What the Bible shows us is that the way that we live grows out of what we really worship. The way we live grows out of what we really worship. Thou shalt not kill. Why? Because God created human life with dignity. Humanity exists as the image bearers of God. And because God creates human life... God says, you should not take life unjustly. You should not steal. Why should I not steal? I want that stuff they've got so bad. Why can't I do that? Because a God who values life and created people values people's livelihoods. God says, you shall not commit adultery and we should honor our mother and father. Why does God do that? Because God created families. And God created the family. He says, I want you to live as if you honor me as the God who made family. You shall not covet. Why should I not covet? Because God made my heart and God cares about the condition of my heart. There's a great example of this in Exodus chapter number 22 of how the law of God is an outworking of the people's knowledge of God and their worship of God. And what you have in Exodus chapter 22 is a commandment about how people should deal with immigrants and the poor. Now chances are you've probably heard something about immigration policy in the past few weeks if you'd like to Binge watch the news. We're talking about this all the time, right? How should we deal with immigrants? Well, here's what God said to Israel. You shall not wrong a sojourner or oppress him, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. You shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. If you do mistreat them and they cry out to me, I will surely hear their cry, and my wrath will burn, and I will kill you with the sword, and your wives shall become widows, and your children fatherless. You see what God's doing in that passage? He says, you need to understand that at one time, you were exiles. At one time, you were oppressed. At one time, you were on the margins of Egyptian society. But you experienced my power. You enjoyed my grace. And now I have rescued you and redeemed you. And so you should show that to the people that live around you and among you. And this is true for all of our lives. That the way we live is a reflection of what we really worship. What God is doing in the first commandment is he is protecting us and preserving us by telling us, if you worship anything else other than me, if you give your heart to anything other than the true God, you are headed for certain destruction and certain death. We become like what we worship. Psalm chapter 115 reveals this probably better than any other passage of Scripture. In Psalm 115, well, that prints awful small, isn't it? (laughs) Verse 4 says, their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. 
They have mouths, but do not speak. Eyes, but do not see. They have ears, but do not hear. Noses, but do not smell. They have hands, but do not feel. Feet, but do not walk. And they do not make a sound in their throat. Then verse 8. Those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. What's the psalmist saying? The psalmist is saying that if you worship false gods that are lifeless and dead, then you will be lifeless and dead. If you worship gods who are not real, who have no substance, your life will have no substance. If you worship gods that have no weight, you will have no weight. And yet we do, don't we? We worship stuff. Worship stuff. And our lives are consumed by fear of losing our stuff. Our lives are consumed by greed, trying to get more stuff. We worship our independence, don't we? And we resent anybody who would ever make a claim on our lives. Sometimes even our own families, our parents, or our children, our spouses. We worship our pleasure. And we lose our lives adrift in a sea of endorphins. It's looking for the next high, the next hit, the next good time. And what God is saying is if you worship false gods, you will be destroyed in your pursuit of them. Why? Because those gods are not real. And since they are not real, they cannot save you. They cannot deliver you. They cannot help you. They cannot bear the burden of being your God. And God says, I am real. And I can bear the burden of being your God. I can take responsibility for you. I can help you. I can save you. And I can rule you. But also, as the people of God reflected their worship of Yahweh in their obedience to the law, they were supposed to be a witness to the other nations. That is to say, as their society was shaped by their worship of the God who had redeemed them, they were different. They were different. And the pagan peoples around them who worshiped false gods were supposed to look at the nation of Israel and say, man, we'd like to have what they've got. Now, Israel never did a great job at that, but that's the way God designed it to work. That the Canaanites and others around the Israelites would say their society is so remarkably thriving and flourishing in a way that ours isn't, we want to get to the heart of it, and at the heart of it is God. Their worship of God was supposed to be a witness for God. But friends, if we have given our hearts over to other gods, no matter where our bodies may find themselves on Sunday morning, if we have given our hearts over to other gods, we cannot effectively witness to the truth of who God is. If our lives are false, we cannot give witness to the true and living God. If we have given ourselves over to greed and covetousness, which according to Colossians 3.5 is idolatry, and if we live lives that are consumed just by obtaining and attaining, then we cannot really give witness to the God who gives life. If we are the kind of people whose tongues and language is set on fire, James says, like a world of hell, we can't bear witness about who God is. If we are sexually impure, unfaithful, neglecting our families, all things that God prohibits in the Ten Commandments, then we cannot bear witness to God. God says, if you worship me, you'll be transformed to be a witness for me. 
And I think what we're really giving witness to with our lives is that we worship false gods. We worship the gods around us. We worship the gods of culture. We worship the God of self. And we bear false witness to the true God. And that ends, that's where we'll end today by talking about the requirement, the actual requirement in the commandment, thou shalt have no other gods before me. The phrase before me in Hebrew is fascinating because it it really says you should have no other gods before my face. And the Hebrew word for face is really, really neat because the Hebrew word for face is just a word that means two cheeks, which is what your face is. Your face is your cheeks, right? And it reminds us of the intimacy of knowing God, the familiarity of being with God. And the words are used in other places in Hebrew scriptures to talk about the brazenness of a husband who would dare commit adultery in the presence of his wife. A man who would violate that trust and violate that relationship by giving his heart and even his body to a woman that is not his. And what God is doing here is saying, you cannot engage in spiritual adultery. You cannot give your heart to any other God but me. Excuse me, but what the people of Israel did all throughout their history is they did exactly that. They pursued other gods. They were spiritual adulterers. So that you come to a place like Jeremiah, really uh, towards the the, the back end of the Old Testament, Jeremiah chapter number 2, look at how Jeremiah's preaching to the people. Now he says some words you can't say in church here, but forgive me. For long ago, God says, for long ago I broke your yoke and burst your bonds, right? The Exodus, I delivered you. But you said, I will not serve. Yes, on every high hill, this is their idolatrous places of worship, on every high hill and under every green tree, you bowed down like a whore. God says, you have committed spiritual adultery. You have been unfaithful because you have rejected relationship with me. And friends, when we read the Ten Commandments, the reality is, that all of us find ourselves guilty of rejecting this God. We've all propped up other gods and tried to worship them as if they can do for us what only God can do for us. As if they can be to us what only God can be to us. I mean, just think about these commandments. Think about your own guilt. And think about how underneath all of this you find yourself condemned because you have rejected God and his right to rule you. That's what God says in these verses. God comes to the people and God says, I am God. I have delivered you. Now here's what you'd better do. I am, I have, you shall or shall not. But in our lives, have we not lived as if, you know, God really doesn't have the right to rule me like that. Consider in the Ten Commandments, God determines that he has the right to structure our families. And we think we know best, don't we? God says he has the right to determine how we speak. Shall not bear false witness. We've got some things on our mind we'd really just like to say. God determines how we treat other people. I shall not kill and I shall not steal. God determines who we worship, who we sleep with. I shall not commit adultery. And yet we live as if those things are really not up to God to decide. They're up to us to decide. And when we understand that, we realize that the Ten Commandments are a mountain that we cannot climb. The Ten Commandments are a burden that we cannot carry. The Ten Commandments represent the righteous standards of God that none of us have met. 
So yes, over the next few weeks, you're going to feel really, really bad about yourself. Because when you understand the Ten Commandments properly, they are a mirror to your soul showing you that you are much worse, much worse than you'd really like to believe. And it happens right here in the text. Look in verse number 18 of Exodus 20. God gives the Ten Commandments. Now notice the people's response. They don't respond by bringing up the praise band. They don't respond with a choir special. They don't even respond by taking up an offering. Look at what they do. Verse 18, when the people saw the thunder, God has come down in thunder on Sinai. They saw the flashes of lightning, the sound of this ear-splitting trumpet as heaven touches earth at Sinai, the mountain smoking. The people were afraid, and they trembled, and they stood far off and said to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. They realized that in their sin, that God is a threat to them. That the holiness and the righteousness of God is something dangerous to them. And they say, we don't want to hear anything else he's got to say. Because we are guilty. And we cannot carry our guilt. The law functions as a mirror showing us our own souls. The law exposes our need for a Savior. But properly understood, the law of God in the Ten Commandments and in all of the law of God points us to Jesus. So the good news for guilty sinners like me today is that the God of Mount Sinai is also the God of Mount Calvary. That the God who thundered in darkness at Mount Sinai is the God who died in the dark on Mount Calvary. That the God who issues the prohibition in Exodus chapter 19, do not come near to me lest my righteousness break out and destroy you, says to us from Mount Calvary, Come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. The God whose holiness condemns me in Mount Sinai is the God whose grace rescues me, claims me, and changes me from Mount Calvary. Now, many of us today, we confess and we believe and know that that's true. We would claim that verse, Romans chapter 8, there is therefore now no condemnation of those who are in Christ Jesus. And thank God that is true. Thank God that in Jesus the law of God has been satisfied. That there has been one righteous man who kept the law. One righteous man who satisfied the law. One righteous man who removed all the threats of the law. And opened up a new and living way into the presence of God. We believe that. But we also miss verse number 2. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Amen. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. You cannot save yourself by keeping the law because you can't keep the law. The law is good. You're not. But God did this. He sent his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. And he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. Who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Paul says that the God of Sinai and the God of Calvary have in the person of Jesus Christ fulfilled the law for you. So that you could be righteous before God. As if you had kept all of these commandments your whole life. Now, I know some of your story. That's a miracle. <laughs> but if that's true, if I really worship the God of Sinai and the God of Calvary, then should I not be living a transformed life of obedience and faithfulness and commitment to the righteousness of God that has rescued me and saved me? That's the point of these commandments. And it's the point 
of that passage in the book of Romans, that I should live as if I do worship the true God, who is the holy and righteous God of Mount Sinai and the gracious, loving God of Mount Calvary. That is my God. And I want to live as if he is my God. And the wonder of God's grace to you is that if you belong to Jesus, God is committed totally committed to his glory in your life and your heart so that you will worship him as your God. Do you know why Jeremiah was saying all those bad words in Jeremiah chapter number 2? Calling everybody adulterers and whoremongers and all that. Do you know why he was doing that? Because God was committed to bringing his people to true worship. God was not going to let them revert back to the idolatry of Egypt. He was not going to let them succumb to the idolatry of the Canaanites. He was not going to let them continue to crank out idols from the factory of their heart. But God said, I am God alone and I will not give up on you. And if God has to, in his grace and kindness and often severity, kick the legs out from every false god you've set up in your life, he'll do it. He will not let you settle for a substitute. He will not let you bow down to a counterfeit. He will not let you give yourself over to some false, propped-up, would-be imposter. God is going to bring you to humble worship and submission to Him, the one true and living God. And I say that because some of you right now are experiencing real pain in your life. You're hurting. And the reason you're hurting is because God in His grace is kicking the legs out from under all your false idols. You've trusted in any number of things throughout your life and God is systematically annihilating them to show you that He alone is God and He alone is worthy of your heart. See, here's what God knows about Himself that we struggle to learn. God knows that He alone deserves glory. You see, God knows God better than you know God. And so God knows that He deserves glory. And he says in Isaiah chapter 42 and verse number 8 that he will not share that glory. The entirety of the Bible is God fleshing out that statement. The entirety of the Bible really could be and probably should be understood as an extended exposition of the first commandment. That God is serious about his name being glorified and his name being enjoyed. God will not share his glory. God is uppermost in his own affections. God has no other God before God. There is none like him. There is none but him. But I fear that many of us have created and invented this creature, this idol that we call God. We would even capitalize the G and say it's the God of the Bible who is not glorious. He's not really all that great. He might not even be that, very, that good because he's really a whole lot like us. God has made us in his image and we've returned the favor. We've created this God that is a product of our imagination. And I'm preaching next week's sermon a little bit too. We've created this God that's a product of our imagination. A God that's an awful lot like us. And he's a God who does not inspire holiness. Because we do not live holy separated lives. He's a God who does not inspire worship because we don't worship Him with passion. He's a God who does not inspire obedience because we don't obey Him. And He's a God who does not exist. The God who is is a God who is worthy of glory. 
The God who exists is a God who is worthy of praise. The God who exists is not this small little creature that we can tinker with and manipulate and by his favor, but he is exalted and holy and sovereign and powerful and good and kind, and he alone is God. Some of us today need to lay down all of our false gods and say, I will have no other gods before his face. For the remainder of my days, he will be my God. Who is your God today? Who is your God, really? It's probably a silly question to ask a church full of Baptists, isn't it? But it's the question. It's always the question. Who is your God? Your life is what it is because your God is who he or she is. And if your God is the God of the Bible, your life will be one that reflects his goodness, reflects his righteousness, reflects his love. But if your life doesn't reflect those things, then maybe you don't have the right God. The great thing is that our God will let you swap. He will let you and eagerly encourages you to throw all those other idols in the trash. Set fire to them and take him as yourself. He says, bring me, bring me your false gods. Bring me the imitations. Bring me the counterfeits. And I will be your God. And you should be his people. Let's stand together today. We'll pray and then we'll sing. Our Father and our God, we are grateful that you alone are God. There is none like you. You are beyond compare. You are without equal. You are without rival. You alone have created us. You alone sustain us. You alone could have redeemed us. But Father, we have a worship problem. We have a worship problem. God, our worship and our love is pointed in all the wrong directions. And we need you in this moment through the work of your spirit and your word that points us to your son. We need you to fix the broken worship in our hearts. Do that, God, today, through all of our days, until the day we go to worship you in glory. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen.